Please be finding Matthew chapter 5. In today's message, our Lord calls us to love without boundaries. Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 43 to 48, are those for which he is most admired and most ridiculed. Those who admire him hear the words of Jesus and his call in these verses as the most heroic call in all the New Testament. And those who ridicule him for calling us to love our enemies see this as the most ridiculous call ever spoken. One thing is certain. This possibility belongs only to those persons who initially and continually know the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to listen to the Lord as He speaks to us this morning in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Starting with the passage we read last week that immediately precedes this one, and continuing through the end of this chapter, we come to the conclusion of one-third of Jesus' message, but many point to verse 48 in chapter 5 as the pinnacle in the Sermon on the Mount. The pinnacle because everything that follows hangs on this word from Jesus. And with these words, Jesus implores his followers to put God on display in how we treat other people. I want us this morning to study these words and to form our thinking around, first of all, the centrality of love for our neighbor. Notice in verses 43 and 44 that Jesus gives a command. The command is, love one another. This command is central to the teaching of Jesus. Originally, it belonged to a long list of commands that were given in Leviticus chapter 19. A long list of commands that appear there. And it's tucked away in the 18th verse at the end of that verse and virtually lost in this long list and yet Jesus lifts out of that 19th chapter this statement and he floods it with the light of his own life and speaks it to us. 
Now, for Jesus, this command is an indication of life. On two occasions, Jesus indicated that love for our neighbor is essential evidence that we've been transformed by God. And I want to point these two out to you. The first is found in Matthew chapter 19, and it is a uh, passage that tells about a conversation that Jesus had with a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler came to Jesus, and he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer to him was, love your neighbor as yourself. On another occasion, Luke reports in his 10th chapter, an expert in the law came testing Jesus. So his attitude is to try and trap Jesus in what he's asking. And he comes to Jesus and he asks him the exact same question. Teacher, what must I do to listen to these words to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered In Luke chapter 10, verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor is Jesus' command, and we look at his life, and we see that as he speaks about this command, he's talking about an indication that we have, in fact, experienced eternal life. It's an evidence. But notice also, obedience to this command is a summation of the law. Both Paul and James state that the entire law of God may be summarized in the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I've got several references there. They won't appear on the screen, but... Feel free to join me as we turn and look and read these. In Romans chapter 13, verse 9, we read these words. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 in the 14th verse, and this is what we read there. Galatians 5, 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then again, in James, we turn to the second chapter and the 8th verse. And this is what James, the half-brother of Jesus, has to say. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the Scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Both Paul and James state that the entire law of God may be summarized in the command, love your neighbor as yourself. The centrality of this word in Jesus' teaching must never be lost. In Jewish teaching, however, the centrality of this imperative had been perverted. Anyone could keep this commandment if they put sufficient limitations on it. 
the people who had gathered there were listening to Jesus speak. Many of them were the Jewish elite, the very religious persons who had gathered there. And they took that statement that had been given, and they interpreted it to mean that we are to love other Jews. That was the limitation that they placed on it. And then they added a phrase to it, and the phrase they added was, and hate your enemy. The self-justifying question that that expert in the law that I referred to earlier in Luke chapter 10, the self-justifying question he asked, do you remember it? Who is my neighbor? And what response did that prompt? From that response, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. I have yet to hear a better outline for the parable of the Good Samaritan than the one that was shared by one of our African-American brothers who preached on the text, and his three points were, this parable represents three approaches to life. Beat them up, pass them up, and pick them up. And Jesus told that parable, but at the end of that parable, it was unmistakable. Jesus answered the question, who is my neighbor? And with the story of the Good Samaritan, the answer comes back to us, anyone. So the command, love your neighbor, is central in the teaching of Jesus. But I want you to notice also the essentiality of love for our enemy. In verses 44 to 47, Jesus intensified and expanded every other law of God. We have seen this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it is said, and then he, what does he do? He recites one of the laws that had been given, a Mosaic law, one of the laws in Israel that was, they were told to be kept. And Jesus, what does he do? He floods it with his own life. He fills it to the full. He says, this is what you've heard. This is what it means. This is how it was always supposed to look in your lives. And he is a living example of what it is to look in us. He filled it to the full. He pushed the command of love to the ultimate boundary. And what is that ultimate boundary? Even the enemy. Now, when Jesus speaks of love, he's talking about that which goes beyond mere sentiment and emotion. I mean, it's easy to love somebody where, you know, Bambi, Twitter-pated, you know, we have just this kind of all-gone, lovey-dovey feeling for a person. That kind of person is easy to love. He's talking about that which goes beyond mere sentiment and emotion. In the Greek language, at the time when Jesus lived, walked this earth, the Greeks had two words for love. Those two words were eros, from which we get our English word erotic. This word is so shameful, it doesn't even appear in the Scriptures. A second word that they had was the word phileo, which means brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. This word was used. But when Jesus came and proclaimed the gospel, and the gospel began to take root in the lives of other people, 
And Jesus preached the gospel this way. God demonstrated his love for us, as Paul declares. How? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was no word in their language to translate this. So they created a word. And the word that they created is the word agape. And the word agape means always to will the highest good for the other person. Think about that today. While we were sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. That's not wanting what he wants or what would be best for him. That meant he was going to die on a cross for us. This amazing love could only be described as a love that wills always the best for the other person. That's the love God has for you and me today. It's the love Jesus had when he spoke these words. And in these words, we find that which must be the case in the presence or absence of mere sentiment or emotion. Jesus' words suggest a definition of our enemy. He intends us to understand the word in all senses, nationally, personally, and religiously. His further amplification of the command includes who? Those who persecute. That phrase, those who persecute, indicates primarily those who are religious enemies. Now remember the scene. Who is this crowd? There are thousands of people who have gathered together. Matthew 4, the end of Matthew 4 tells us. These people have come from where? Jordan and Syria. They have come to Jesus because they hear Jesus has the power to heal a person's life. They've come for physical healing. They have no concept that what Jesus has come is not only to heal them physically, but to heal them spiritually. But also in that crowd of the religious Jews who have come up from Jerusalem and also from that region in the Sea of Galilee there in northern Israel. And in that region, you have people who are gathered there who hate one another. I mean, they don't just dislike each other. They hate one another. These religious Jews are listening to this man speak. They're trying to catch him, to trap him in what he's saying. And Jesus, as he speaks these words, he is speaking to a crowd who badly needs to hear this message. The Jews have interpreted it as what? Love other Jews. Love other people who believe as I believe, and what? 
Hate those who don't believe as we believe. Friends, no hatred is more odious than religious hatred. Jesus' first followers quickly found this to be the case. Little did they know that these words Jesus is speaking here at the beginning of discipleship will be played out in their own lives as they will be the recipients of the hatred. They themselves, Jesus is speaking to, he himself will be the recipient of religious persecution. Speaking to his disciples a short time before his arrest, we have what's called the Olivet Discourse. It begins in chapter 14 of John's Gospel. It continues through the 17th chapter, concluding with Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to the words of Jesus. Now, he's, it's a short time before he's about to be arrested. Listen to what he is saying to his disciples, his followers. He says to them in John chapter 15, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, what? Also persecute you. Going on a short time later, the same discourse. He's making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's talking with his disciples as they're walking alongside of him. And as they're conversing about what is about to happen, they have no clue. And what does Jesus say to them in John chapter 16, verse 2? He says this, They'll ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's real. We're to love even the man who thinks he is doing God a favor by hating us. Such love does not come naturally. I mean, if there's anything that tells us that the Christian life is not of this world, it would be these words. Things like this don't bubble up from the pews and all of a sudden receive a vote of confidence from everybody. This requires a supernatural movement of God who transforms our lives and takes us and lifts us above what we see, what we feel, what we think in our own world and in our own experience. He's talking about something otherworldly taking place in this world. And to whom is he speaking? Citizens of the kingdom of God. I don't know if we still do this. But in vacation Bible school, we used to stand and say two pledges. I don't know if we still do that. We would say a pledge to the American flag 
and our pledge as Christians to the Christian flag. The love that Jesus speaks about is a love that is known only by citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus further gives a motivation for our love. And the motivation is threefold, and we see it in the text. First, we're to love our enemies because of an affinity to our Father. Look at verse 45. Love your neighbor so that you may be what? Children of your Father. Now he's talking about, not talking about us earning anything. We don't earn our way to be God's children. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What he's talking about is, here's an evidence that your heart has truly been transformed by the power of God. And so he says to them, God's sons must be God-like. God's characterized by impartial generosity. And he says so in verse 45. As he speaks about common grace. And that common grace that he mentions in verse 45 is this. For God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. One element of proof of sonship is resemblance to our heavenly father. And Ephesians 5.1 even says so. Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So one motivation is an affinity to our Father. A further motive is the reality of reward. Verse 46 says this, And if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Jesus doesn't hesitate to call us to the highest expression of love on the basis of an expected reward. There's a special reward awaiting those who have loved their enemies. But he also motivates us with a call to superiority of conduct. In verse 47, Jesus points to the fact that even those we despise as morally worthless have love for one another of their own kind. What do you think he's trying to point out to us? He's trying to point out to us that the Christian is always called to do the over and above. We're never called to do just the mediocre. We never compare ourselves to moral mediocrity. The Christian is always called to do that which exceeds that which men show to each other. Now, these three motivations, an affinity to our Father, the reality of reward, and a call to superiority of conduct should compel us to a life of active love even for those who do not love us. Anybody here feeling uncomfortable yet? Anybody feel the tension? That's the tension we feel when we're pulled heavenward versus earthward. 
It's the tension we feel when God pulls us up and others pull us down. It, it stretches us like Gumby. It twists us. It turns us. We are like putty in the master's hands who seeks to do what? Here I am. I'm a lump of clay. Do what with me? Remake me and mold me into what? Your image. And then we see, of course, the finality of love in our lives. Jesus concludes this section with the ultimate and final appeal. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't wish to go into this in great detail, but I think it bears noting that the Scripture that was given in Hebrew and Aramaic and spoken among the Jews was translated from Hebrew to Greek. Do you remember the scripture that says that, that Jesus was born at the right time? You remember the Pax, uh, Pax Romana? The Romans, who were enemies of Jerusalem as far as they were concerned, had managed to create peace throughout the world at the time when Jesus was born. The Greeks were responsible for bringing culture even to the Romans who followed the lead of the Greeks and their great empire. And so what happened is, is you have language, common language that is spreading throughout the kingdom. And so the scriptures are translated from Hebrew to Greek. And we should not expect that in every instance there is an exact corollary from a Hebrew word to a Greek word. The word perfect is an entirely Greek concept. From a Jewish standpoint, the word would mean blameless or holy. Be holy as I am holy. And yet the word stands. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greek word teleos means complete as when a ship is fitted out perfectly for sea or a legion of soldiers has everything required before they enter into battle. In our text, this word is best understood by the translation morally complete. Where the Lord rules and reigns in our hearts, there should be nothing lacking in all the Christians should be. No blemishes. As blameless as Jesus Christ. Notice in this command, Jesus makes a distinction. In contrast to the tax collectors and the Gentiles, which would represent the pagan, We're to seek moral completeness. 
Others will be satisfied with moral mediocrity and loving only those who love them. Our goal must never be moral mediocrity, but moral superiority. Notice also that as we take this into our mouths and swill it around before swallowing it down, we feel this tension and we long within ourselves to say, God, where am I in this? How do I make sense of this? How does this become a part of me? Well, let me offer some encouragement to you today. Perhaps the best grasp of this ultimate and final command is to call it, write this down, single-mindedness. That is one characteristic of all kingdom citizens, single-minded. Although you and I, as we hear these words this morning, recognize we'll not perfectly attain, we're never satisfied with the lack of attainment. If God can use a man like the Apostle Paul with his past and use him to record 13 books of the Bible, And the Apostle Paul, a great saint like that, would declare, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What Paul says, we say. Paul's confession is our confession. We don't give up. We don't throw down. We don't say, well, forget it. That's too far-reaching. I can't get there. I'm not there now. We cry out to God with the Apostle Paul and say, I haven't attained it yet. But this much I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what lies ahead, I pursue the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There's a passage I do not have on the screen, but... I must insist that you turn there with me and look at it as we come to the conclusion of this message. It's Psalm chapter 18. Now that's a throwback. That's a reach. But I want you to look at Psalm 18 with me. I'm going to read just three verses. It's beginning at verse 30. But you really need to look at it for yourself. It's not on the screen. And you know what? The person next to you will let you look on the page with them. It's okay to... Look on somebody else's paper in church when they're looking at the Bible. Psalm 18, verse 30. David is testifying. And in Psalm 18, verse 30, what does he say? God. Here's his declaration. He's perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock? Only our God. God. He clothes me with strength and makes my way 
perfect. Now stay riveted on those words and let me walk you through it for just a second. Who is God? Verse 30. The one who is perfect. What does he do? Verse 32. He works to perfect people. And then the next logical question is, how does he perfect people? And this points us to the three phases or stages of salvation. How does God perfect people? First of all, he perfects the record. When you and I sin, we don't just sin individually. Our sin impacts others. More than anything, when we sin, we offend the justice of God. God is holy. Nobody can enter into God's presence. God demands holiness. He's not just kind of, you know, hey, if you feel like it and get around to it. God is holy. You cannot be in the presence of God without being holy. I'd say that shuts out everybody. There's none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're in a mess unless God does something on our behalf. And what did God do? God the Father sent God the Son to come into this world who lived a life as a perfect sacrifice to take our sins upon himself to bear our sin on the cross and to take the punishment that we deserve. Hebrews 10.14 says it so well. Listen to it. He has perfected forever those who believe in Him. So the first thing God does to make us perfect is He perfects the record. All our sin cast upon Jesus. All the debt we owed, canceled for those who trust in Christ for their salvation. Number two, the second phase of salvation, God works to perfect the believer more and more in this life. That's called the $50 word, sanctification. And sanctification begins at the very moment you trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord. What does God do? He gives you a power greater than yourself to come inside of you to show that you belong to Him. He gives you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes in and takes residence in you. And this visual picture we're given of 
Jewish worship is said that your life, your body is a sanctuary. Remember the tabernacle? God dwelt in the tabernacle. Your body is a sanctuary where God dwells. God the Holy Spirit. Therefore, do what? Glorify God in your body. Don't just have a devil-may-care attitude. That was Greek thinking. Do whatever you want to in the body. It doesn't matter. The body doesn't survive. Only the soul survives. Jesus says, no, when you're saved, you're saved. God's salvation touches every phase, touches our mind, touches our body, touches our soul. It touches the whole person. The whole person is saved. He uses the Word of God. We are perfected through the washing of the water of the Word. God sanctifies us by dealing with the wrong ideas and attitudes and actions that belonged to us before we believed. And that is accomplished by the Holy Spirit and our obedience to the Word of God. Now you're thinking about yourself the same way I'm thinking about myself this morning in this second phase of salvation called sanctification. The believer's been perfected forever by faith in Christ in one sense, but it's equally true that the believer is far from perfect in another sense. Please be patient with me. God's not finished yet. And critical in this stage is 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So in this second stage, the stage in which those of us who are saved are living in this very present moment, in the second stage, we're learning to trust and obey God. We're learning to confess sin. We're learning to walk in fellowship with God our Father moment by moment. And then the final stage. The final stage of God's work is to perfect the saint completely in the moment of death. Sin and death have been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 promises this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Salvation touches every aspect of our living, our past, our present, our future. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. And someday that which God desires for all of us, perfection, will come to completion and have its full effect. And yet it leaves us longing, knowing that one day, we will stand before the judge 
and we will look him in the eye face to face. And we will recall the words of Jesus. And at that moment, the only thing we will desire is that we had paid more attention to the details. Perfected forever by the sacrifice of Jesus. That's not a hall pass just to go out and do whatever you want to do. That's a call to a higher living. Moral completeness. That's what Jesus is after. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for um, knowing exactly where I am, where every person in this room is this morning. And Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for um, not giving up on me, knowing that there are so many wrong ideas, so many wrong thoughts and actions in my past that have yet to be dealt with completely that still require your chipping away at, and yet you are relentless, Holy Spirit, in your effort to remove all of the dross and all of the sin so that I may come forth as pure gold. Father, this morning I pray for that man, woman, husband, wife, father, mother, daughter, son, brother, sister, Father, if today you have shown them that they are lost without Jesus, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for them. That they would not resist the calling of the Holy Spirit to you right now and that they would just say, Jesus, I need you. I want you. Come in and save me. Thank you that you have died on the cross for me already that you may pay the perfect sacrifice for my sin that I might never have to think about it again because as far as the east is from the west you say you will remove my sins from me this morning that may be your prayer so just say Jesus I need you I ask you to come in right now and forgive me of my sin be my savior I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Jesus, I'm choosing to follow you right now. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you made that your prayer this morning, I want you just to look up here at me for just a moment. Anybody? You made that your prayer. And let me tell you, this is what God wants you to do. Don't leave this room this morning without telling somebody, that was my prayer today. I asked Jesus to come in to save me, to be my Savior.
Now you heard Andy with that long litany of announcements earlier. I tell you what, nobody loves you any more than Andy. And he'd love to talk to you this morning before you leave and just hear you say, Andy, I need to know how to take the next step. I've taken Jesus as my Savior. And so your prayer ought to be as you continue to say, Jesus, I've taken you as my Lord and Savior. Help me not to ever be ashamed to tell others that Christ is my Lord and Savior. I want to follow you. And I'm going to start today by telling others that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Right after this service, Andy's going to be standing down here this morning. Right after we sing this next song, right after we dismiss, we'll be standing here for just a moment. You come and share your decision. You heard a few moments ago that in a couple of weeks we'll be having another baptism service. And uh, we have a time coming up where if you have an interest in becoming a part of our church, We'll have an information meeting on that, on how you can take the next steps in that regard. And if that's your desire, just let Andy know. Andy, I've got an interest in that. So, Father, thank you for what you've done in our midst this morning. Thank you that we get to celebrate our independence as America. I don't know another place on the planet where a person could feel as free to preach the gospel as I have felt this morning. Freedom without persecution. And yet, Lord, I know it costs the lives of many, many people. Thank you for the vision of our forebears. Thank you for those who went before us who had a vision of a land where people could come and pursue God and worship Him according to the dictates of their own heart and their own soul and their own conviction without government interference or government dictation. And yet we know freedom is not free. It cost. Just as it cost Jesus his life that we might have freedom from sin, it cost the lives of many American servicemen and women who have given their lives so that we could be here in this place and worship in this way this morning. And I would not forget to thank you for that privilege. And I know that many others in this room join me, Father, in just saying thank you. And we don't know why this has been thrust upon us other than to say this is a gift. And it is not a gift to be squandered upon ourselves. It is a window of opportunity you have given to us, Lord that has made it possible for us as Christian citizens to be the light of the world. And Father, we pray that we will be that as you have given us the privilege to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.